We're looking this afternoon at Article 9 of the Belgic Confession. And that article is found on page 56 and 57 in the Three Forms of Unity. Let's read through the article first. <coughs> the article is entitled The Proof of the Foregoing Article of the Trinity of Persons at One God. It reads as follows, All this we know as well from the testimonies of Holy Writ as from their operations, and chiefly by those we feel in ourselves. The testimonies of the Holy Scriptures that teach us to believe this Holy Trinity are written in many places of the Old Testament, which are not so necessary to enumerate as to choose them out with discretion and judgment. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, God says, Let us make man in our image, According to our likeness, so God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And Genesis 3, verse 22, behold, the man has become like one of us. From this saying, let us make man in our image, it appears that there are more persons than one in the Godhead. And when he says God created, he signifies the unity. It is true, he does not say how many persons there are. But that which appears to us somewhat obscure in the Old Testament is very plain in the New. For when our Lord was baptized in Jordan, the voice of the Father was heard, saying, This is my beloved Son. The Son was seen in the water, and the Holy Spirit appeared in the shape of a dove. This form is also instituted by Christ in the baptism of all believers. Make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, verse 19. In the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel thus addressed Mary, the mother of our Lord, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Likewise, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. And there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. 1 John 5, verse 7. In all these places, we are fully taught that there are three persons and one only divine essence. And although this doctrine far surpasses all human understanding, nevertheless, we now believe it by means of the Word of God. But expect hereafter to enjoy the perfect knowledge and benefit thereof in heaven. Moreover, we must observe the particular offices and operations of these three persons towards us. The Father is called our Creator by His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His dwelling in our hearts. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been affirmed and maintained by the true Church since the time of the Apostles to this very day. Against the Jews, Mohammedans, and some false Christians and heretics, as Marcion, Manes, Praxius, Sibelius, Samosatanus, Arius, and such like, who have been justly condemned by the Orthodox Fathers. Therefore, in this point, we do willingly receive the three creeds, namely that of the Apostles of Nicaea and of Athanasius, likewise that which, conformable thereunto, is agreed upon by the ancient Fathers. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we considered the doctrine of the Trinity 
itself, and we saw that that doctrine of the Trinity consists of three parts. The first part of that doctrine is, of course, that God is one in essence, or to put it a little differently, that God is uh, one being, or that there is only one God. The second part of that doctrine of the Trinity is that there are in this one God three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the third part is that each of these persons has a distinct and incommunicable personal property which distinguishes him from the other persons. Thus the Father is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things. The Son is is the word, wisdom, and image of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. And I'm using there the language of Article 8 of the Belgic Confession. Now this article which we're looking at this afternoon, Article 9, has to do with the proof of that uh, confession of the doctrine of the Trinity. And that proof takes uh, three, is divided really in the article into three parts. The first part is proof from the Old Testament. The second part is proof from the New Testament. And the third part is proof really from the operations of the three persons for us. And we're going to look at those, the proof of the doctrine then under those three headings. But notice also that the article ends with a listing of various heresies that in some way or another deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And I want to begin there. I want to begin with the end of the article and then go to the beginning of the article and talk about the scriptural proof. We have there in that list of heresies regarding the doctrine of the Trinity uh, really two kinds of heresies or two kinds of um, teachings that deny this doctrine of the Trinity. One uh, kind of teaching emphasizes the unity of God and denies the threeness of God, that God is three in persons. And the other uh, uh, heresies, the other teachings, tend to emphasize the plurality in God and therefore end up denying that God is one or that there is only one God. So we're going to divide those, uh, the list of the heresies here into those two categories. Into the first category, of course, very obviously, fall the Jews and the Mohammedans, first of all. The Jews maintain very strongly, of course, the oneness of God. And even though the Old Testament scriptures speak in very various places of the Son of God, the Jews expected their Messiah to be the Son of God, and speak in many places of the Holy Spirit, for example, of the Holy Spirit coming on the prophets or coming on the judges during that period in Israel's history, the Jews, nevertheless, maintain that their God is one, that there is no threeness in him at all, and over against the uh, teaching of the Trinity by the Christian church have 
emphasized their Shema, the passage in Deuteronomy 6, where we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And of course, the Mohammedans also teach that there is just one God, and they have nothing to say about any kind of plurality at all in the Godhead. We, of course, in response to this, would say they do not worship the God who reveals himself in the scriptures. They are idolaters. But yet there are also other heresies that fall into this category of denying the threeness of God. And uh, these uh, heresies are especially the heresies of Praxius and of Sibelius, two of the men mentioned there in the article, Praxius and Sibelius. The uh, Praxius and Sibelius would probably be called today anyway monarchians, and that word means simply one ruler, basically, one God, then you can see the emphasis on the idea of the oneness of God there. But these two, Praxius and Sibelius, would probably fall into the category of modalistic monarchians, modalistic monarchians. And the idea behind their teaching was really that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, though Of course, you can't deny that the New Testament scriptures at least speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all refer to the same being and to the same person. And the modalistic monarchians then taught that the the Father, or God, reveals himself in these different modes. Sometimes he reveals himself as Father, sometimes he reveals himself as Son, and sometimes he reveals himself as as Holy Spirit. But it's all the same being and it's all the same person. The Father then became the Son, or the the Father revealed himself as the Son, and the Father suffered for our sins. This is what Praxius said. The Father suffered for our sins. And he and others with him then were called patripassionists. Patripassionists. The Father suffered is the basic idea of that word. And Sibelius would have said God is uh, single and indivisible. The Son and the Holy Spirit are consecutive manifestations of the one God. God has different modes then of revealing himself. That's why it's called modalistic monarchianism. But there's also listed in this uh, article Paul of Samoseta, or Samosatanus, he's called in the article Samosatanus, and he's also called a monarchian, but a, a dynamic monarchian instead of a modalistic monarchian. And his idea was that Christ uh, did not begin life as God, but was granted godhood in the course of his life that the Logos was infused into him, or that he was adopted uh, to be God. That the eternal Logos, who is not a person, 
was given to him, and through this means, he became God. So they would be called dynamic monarchians. Christ became God through the adoption, and sometimes these are called adoptionists then, because they say Christ was adopted to be God. Then you have also that category of those who teach, really, that there's more than one God. And these are the rest of those who are found in that list. Marcion is the first one who's found in that list. Marcion uh, combined a lot of pagan philosophy with certain parts of Christian teaching. Marcion, for example, rejected the whole of the Old Testament said it did not belong to the canon of inspired scriptures. And he rejected also most of the New Testament, all except parts of the Gospel of Luke and ten of the letters of the Apostle Paul. And Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament was a different God from the God of the New Testament. He called the God of the Old Testament the Demiurge. This Demiurge created the world and gave the law, and men fell then because they couldn't keep the law. You can see how he denied the oneness of God then in this way. But the higher God, the more gracious God of the New Testament, sent his son to redeem fallen men. His son, and here you can see some uh, influence of Gnosticism that uh, sets up an opposition between matter and spirit. The son came in a visionary, not a real body. The son came in a visionary body to redeem fallen men, and the Demiurge then had the Son crucified. The God of the Old Testament had the Son crucified. That was Marcion. Very strange stuff to us. Then there's Manes in this list, and he was the father of Manichaeism. Remember that the church father, Augustine, spent some time in adhering to the Uh, Manichaeism of his day and they too taught that Christ was only a man who came in a visionary body to save men by his teaching Samosatanus falls into this category yes Samosatanus I've already uh, talked about him I confused him with the the, uh, monarchian Samosatanus was a Uh, one who denied the unity of the Godhead rather than um, the triunity of the Godhead. Jesus was a um, man miraculously born. And into this category also falls Arius. Arius, Christ was not of the same substance with the Father. He was created by God. He was the highest of all God's creatures, He uh, had certain divine characteristics, perhaps, but he was definitely not of the same substance with the Father. There were terms that were used in the uh, churches in those days. Homo-usios. Homo-usios means of the same substance. This was the term used to describe the Orthodox teaching. Christ was homo-usios, with the Father, 
Arius used the term, or of Arius the term was used, heterousios, of different substance from the Father. And then of the Semiarians, who kind of tried to place themselves between the Orthodox and Arius, the term homoiousios, homoiousios, of similar substance with the Father. So the Arians and Semi-Arians fell into the error of denying the deity of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Though Christ was the highest of all of God's creatures in their teaching. Now these heresies regarding the Trinity persist in our day in various forms. I want to remind you briefly of some of those. First of all, you have Unitarianism still in existence. You can find Unitarian churches in this country and in other parts of the world. They deny that Jesus was God. God is one, not in any sense or in any way three. The Mormons, of course, deny the unity of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct beings. There are other gods besides the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, The saints, in fact, may attain to deity. So there can be many gods in Mormon teaching. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is the only direct creation of God and that all other things were created through Jesus and the Holy Spirit is God's applied power or active force not a person but you have those three heresies and then there are some trends also recent trends relatively speaking in evangelicalism one of those trends is to teach a kind of subordinationism. This was actually a heresy also in the early church and has raised its head again in our times. The subordinationists teach that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. And those who teach this today may say he's functionally subordinate, but not ontologically subordinate, that he's, that is his, he's not in his being or in his person subordinate to the Father, but he's subordinate to the Father in what he does. So you get this kind of subordinationism which tends towards a, a threeness in the Godhead which goes beyond what the Orthodox Church has always accepted. It, it tends toward a tritheism, in fact. If the Son is not co-equal with God, the Father, then he is different in his Godhead, somehow, from the Father. So you have subordinationism being taught again. And then there's a social Trinitarianism, it's called social Trinitarianism. And the social Trinitarians teach that the Trinity is simply a community of persons. The oneness of God is in the relationship of the persons rather than in the being, the one being of God. They want this 
very strong emphasis on the community of the Godhead. And so the oneness of the Godhead is in the relationship of the three persons, one to another. So you still see this, these, uh, some of these heresies today, and it's important, therefore, that we understand what the church in the past has taught and how the church has arrived at its teaching from the scriptures. Let's look then at the, the uh, proof of the doctrine of the Trinity from the scriptures. We begin with the proof from the Old Testament. And what I want to do here is as we look at the proofs that the confession has, I want to go also somewhat beyond what the confession cites. So we're going to begin with what the confession says from about the proof of the doctrine from the Old Testament. It cites, first of all, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, where God says, and God is here, obviously, taking counsel with himself. So that implies some kind of plurality in the Godhead. God says within himself, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And you have a similar passage in Genesis 3, verse 22. Behold, the man has become like one of us. Again, that uh, taking counsel of God within himself, which implies a plurality in the Godhead. It appears the confession says that there are more persons than one in the Godhead. And when he says God created, he signifies the unity. But the confession says he does not, and it does not say how many persons there are. And that's the extent of the confession's proof of the doctrine from the Old Testament. But I want to go a bit beyond that, as I've already indicated. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, we have a similar passage. There are more of these passages where God is taking counsel with himself and is uh, clearly indicating some plurality in the Godhead. Genesis 11, verse 7, this is God consulting within himself about what to do about Babel. And he says, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. Clearly, this is a, is a miraculous, a divine work that's being done here. He's confusing the languages. He's making it impossible for men to understand each other. And he says within himself, let us then go down and accomplish this mighty work. There's another passage in Isaiah 6, verse 8, which uh, talks the same way. Here we have Isaiah uh, explaining his call to uh, the office of prophet, and he hears God talking in that verse. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Who will go for us? Again, it is God consulting within himself. And one more passage of that character, Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 6. Ezekiel 44, verse 6. God is here reproaching Israel for her sins. 
And he says there in verse 6, Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. So those are passages where you have that uh, indications of the plurality in the Godhead. But I think actually there are clearer indications of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament. For example, if you turn to Isaiah 61, verse 1, we really have reference there to all three persons of the Trinity. We know that here in Isaiah 61, verse 1, it is our Lord Jesus Christ who is talking. Because our Lord, when he was teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, quoted this passage and said regarding it, today this uh, word is fulfilled in your hearing. And he said this, the Spirit of the Lord God, notice the reference to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together there in Isaiah 61, verse 1. Then you have all those passages in the Old Testament, and there are many of them who, that give us the names of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For example, in Psalm 2, we have, again, our Lord Jesus Christ talking there in that psalm, in the middle part of that psalm, and he says that he will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten me. You ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Or Daniel 7 verse 13. Daniel 7 verse 13. The son is also named there. I was watching, this is Daniel recounting his vision. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And of course, there are many, many places in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit is named. We read about the Holy Spirit coming on the prophets. We read about the Holy Spirit coming on the Judges, in the book of Judges. And David himself prays for the Holy Spirit in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 11 and 12. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. So those are just a few passages. We could also refer to all those passages in the Old Testament which uh, clearly indicate that the Son is God. We have the name of the Son given to us. Then there are all those passages where it's clear that the Son is God and Passages also in the Old Testament where it's clear that the Holy Spirit is God. But we're going to save those because in Article 10, 
We have the confession, Jesus Christ is true and eternal God. We'll look at all those passages regarding Christ in that article. And in Article 11, the Holy Spirit is true and eternal God. And we'll look at some Old Testament passages about the Holy Spirit in connection with that article. So you have this doctrine, I think, more, much more clearly revealed in the Old Testament than our confession really indicates for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are named, and it's taught very clearly, even in the Old Testament, that the Son and the Holy Spirit are God. That brings us then to the New Testament. And here, what the uh, Confession does is cite a number of passages from the New Testament where the three persons of the Trinity appear within the passage. So you have the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ as recounted in all uh, three of the Synoptic Gospels. But the Confession cites from Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, and it says this, When our Lord was baptized, the voice of the Father was heard, saying, This is my beloved Son. The Son was seen in the water, and the Holy Spirit appeared in the shape of a dove. You find the three persons of the Trinity named in the Great Commission. When Jesus sent his apostles out, he told them, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a passage that indicates the uh, equality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this work of salvation. Baptism, of course, the baptism that the apostles practiced was a sign of the real baptism, but it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who give that real baptism, that washing from sin. That's why we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Luke 1, verse 35, we have the account of the conception of our Lord Jesus Christ with the angel describing it to Mary. Ahead of time, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. You have it in the Trinitarian blessing at the end of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The blessing is a divine blessing. And it is a blessing that comes from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All these passages then reveal this doctrine of the Trinity in just those few verses. But there are other verses as well. Oh, I, I should mention too, 1 John 5, verse 7, the Confession cites 1 John 5, verse 7, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. It's generally agreed today that that verse does not belong in the Scriptures, that it did not appear in John's original letter, And so we will pass over that one. It's not necessary to the proof of the doctrine of the Trinity anyway. There are other passages in the the New Testament also which 
indicate the doctrine of the Trinity. We can look, for example, at Luke chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. Luke 10, verses 21 and 22. And this is really a sampling of of many verses that are uh, along the same lines, especially perhaps in the Gospel of John. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Or in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. It's another passage which uh, unites these three names. Um, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you have the Spirit, the Son, and the Father there. And the Spirit coming and crying in our hearts, Abba, Father. Again, those are just a few passages out of many that could be cited. There are also all those places in the New Testament which describe, uh, which ascribe divine names or divine honors or divine works to the Son and the Spirit. But again, we'll save those for Articles 10 and 11. And then the third part of the proof that the article offers to us is the works of these three persons towards us. The second to the last paragraph of the article, we must observe the particular offices and operations of these three persons towards us. The Father is called our Creator by His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His dwelling in our hearts. We're so used to thinking in these these terms that we hardly think of this as revealing to us the doctrine of the Trinity, but you see that The doctrine of the Trinity lies at the foundation of this this teaching that all of us as uh, Christians accept. The Father is our Creator, the Son our Savior, the Holy Spirit our Sanctifier. We would not say that the Father is our Savior by His blood. We would say the Father is our Savior, but not by His blood. We would not say that the Holy Spirit dwells, or that the Father or the Son dwell in our hearts though we would say the Father and the Son also participate in the work of sanctification, and so on. So these works of the Father towards us, the works of God towards us, distinguish the three persons for us. And I want to pursue that also a little further. This doctrine of the Trinity was very important to the Apostle Paul. And you find it really implicitly throughout his writings in the New Testament. Uh, We're going to take a look at some passages in the book of Ephesians that show us the three persons of the Trinity working together 
to accomplish our salvation. And the first passage is found in Ephesians chapter 1, of course, that great doxology of the Apostle Paul that goes from verse 3 all the way through uh, verse uh, 14. And this is a Trinitarian doxology. It has three parts to it. One part about God the Father, one part about God the Son, and another part about God the Holy Spirit. The Father is in verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. There we see the Father's electing, predestinating grace towards us. Then in verse 7, about the Son, who is called at the very end of verse 6, the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. We have redemption through the blood of the Beloved Son. And in verse 13, the Holy Spirit, the second part of that verse, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So the Holy Spirit seals us. The Father chooses us. The Son redeems us by his blood. The Holy Spirit seals us. That's one passage. Then you may look also at verse 17 in this same chapter, verse 17, where Paul prays for the saints in Ephesus. And he says that this is his prayer for them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's chapter 1. Then if you go on to chapter 2, you find this doctrine implied again at the end of that chapter where Paul is describing the glory of the church and the unity of the church in Christ. We begin at verse 18, for through him, that is through Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see the three persons of the Trinity again there. Again in chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Paul is talking about the mystery of the gospel. 
which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to us by the Spirit, to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. That's verses 5 to 7 of Ephesians 3. Again in verse, verses 14 to 16 of that chapter. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may become, be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. In chapter 4, verses 3 to 6, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, that's our Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. In verses 30 to 32 of that chapter, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, that all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So you have the Spirit, the Father, and the Son in that one also. And finally, in chapter 5, verses 17 to 21, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. When you look at that passage, and many other passages, by the way, throughout Paul's letters, you find him doing this over and over again, referring to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in uh, verses that are united together in one paragraph, really, expressing one main idea. He's founding his teaching of the church without actually expressing the doctrine of the Trinity explicitly. He's founding his whole teaching of the church, his instruction of them, his instruction in doctrine and his instruction in godly living as well, on the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come up over and over and over again in the Apostle Paul's writings. And it's always in conjunction, of course, because that's what Paul writes about, it's always in conjunction with the work of salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one God who work out our salvation for us. And you see then, that not only shows us that this doctrine is present throughout the scriptures, but it shows us how important that doctrine is. It lies at the very foundation of our salvation. 
deny this doctrine and you will inevitably end up denying the scriptural doctrine of salvation as well. You cannot teach the true doctrine of salvation unless you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Deny it. And you fall short of Christianity. You fall short of truth. And you fall short of salvation. The proof of the doctrine of the Trinity then is this, that the scriptures teach us there is one God. The scriptures teach us that there are three in this God, this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we call these three persons. The scriptures ascribe different works to these persons. The Father sends the Son and gives to the Son those whom he has chosen from eternity. The Son becomes incarnate, suffers and dies for us, rises from the dead, and is exalted to the right hand of God. And the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, dwells in our hearts to apply to us all that Christ, the Son of God, has earned for us by his death and resurrection. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then, working together for our salvation, working together to bring us into that glorious fellowship that has existed eternally in the triune God himself. The communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit among themselves, where the Spirit searches the deep things of God, and the Son knows what is in the mind of God, and the Father is eternally begetting the Son in his own image. The Son is his own eternal word, the Logos, of whom John speaks in John 1. This doctrine is not a doctrine which you have to search deeply for in the Scriptures. It's there. If only you pay attention to those names. It's there all over the Scriptures, both of the Old and the New Testaments. May God give us a better understanding of his word in days to come.